This is the Skirted Roundtable. I'm Linda Merrill from Surroundings. And I'm Johnny Webb of Pope, Texas. Megan couldn't join us. She has jury duty, so it's just the two of us, plus a very special guest. We're excited to be welcoming interior designer Alexa Hampton to the Skirted Roundtable. So, Alexa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. So, as with all of our guests, we like to hear about our guest backgrounds. Obviously, yours is, is generally fairly well known. Your dad was the designer extraordinaire, Mark Hampton, um, and you are capably carrying on his name and, and establishing your own as well. So, maybe talk about your dad and his work and your growing up in the business, and then we'll we'll take it from there. All right. Well, my... I. It's not my history, but I have to give you a little thumbnail sketch of my father's background leading up to being a designer because it cracks me up. So he was always an incredibly gifted student. He was in Indiana. His father was a farmer and an undertaker. And my father wanted to go out of state for college, and his father absolutely forbade it. But he was a Ford, he won a Ford fellowship. And so for his junior year abroad, he could do a junior year abroad. And he went to the London School of Economics, which is part one of the hilarious, you know, like what decorators go to London School of Economics. <laughs> right. And while he was in London, he worked for David Hicks. Ah. And in between, in between classes and seminars, he, he just knocked on his door one day and said, listen, Mr. Hicks, I'm a big fan of your work. And David said, well, what do you... You know, what do you have to represent your abilities? And my father was a wonderful artist, and he had done incredible interiors, just out of his head, just make-believe. So David liked what he saw, hired him on the spot, and he worked for him for three months before he had to go back to the States. And then a little side note here is that summer before he went home, he was touring Europe, his version of the Grand Tour, and went on a blind date in Florence, Italy, and met my mother. So that's how they met. And then... He finished his history degree at DePaul University. Then he went to law school at Michigan. And he went there because his parents kind of wanted him to be a lawyer or a doctor. And he was being dutiful, but he was miserable. And he was trying to figure out, you know, how can I sell this career to my parents in a way that they'll be okay with it? They won't, you know, because it seemed very silly in that era to want to pursue this, much less for a man to pursue it. So he, he left law school and convinced his parents um, that it would be fine and honorable and desirable to get his master's in, uh, in art history at the Institute of Fine Arts at NYU. So that's where he, he and my mother married. He got his master's at, at the Institute. My mother was getting her master's in English at NYU proper. And he, one summer, went into Parrish Hadley to get an internship. And sister heard his voice. And after he left, she popped her head out of the office and said, I don't know who that was, but you have to hire him because he sounds just like my dead brother. Oh, I like that. Then he went to Macmillan for seven years and then went out on his own as Mark Hampton Inc. So I always, I've always been artistic, so I always looked to my father and thought, oh, well, we're alike. You know how kids do that. You, you're trying to find somebody to make sense of your own personality. Yeah. Okay, he's artistic. I'm like him. So I was watching what he was up to. And when I was 13, I started interning at his office for a month every summer. And then I worked for a semester in college. 
And, you know, like my father didn't get do anything relating to my career in college, I, I studied history at Brown University, history and literature. And then I, too, went to the Institute of Fine Arts after, but I pooped out. I did not stay to complete my master's. And I like to joke that obviously that was the right thing to do because now I've got an honorary doctorate from a different school. So it was all my plan. <laughs> so when I was 27, my father died and you know, we hadn't really, he was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in February of 1998 and he died July 23rd, which is today, which is oh. um, my daughter was born on the 10th anniversary of his death, which is bizarre. So now it's 14 years later. And we had never talked about what we were going to do because we were, you know, contending with cancer. So I just said to my mother, you know, this is obviously, you know, I've been doing this for years. This is my career. So I'll try to keep it going. And then a few years later, I bought the company from her. As I started running the company just with no plan, I established Alexa Hampton, Inc., to do my licensing that's under my name. So I was doing, I started with Cravat Fabrics and then I obviously did Hickory Chair Furniture. And so I signed on with Hickory Chair in 2003. And that's when it occurred to me, I was enjoying the entrepreneurial side of the business. And I wanted, besides wanting to be my own master because I was the only person in the family doing the decorating. I, I wanted the latitude to explore the field and, and do stuff. So that drove me to buy the company. That and also I think, you know, I knew I was going to have kids and I, I just wanted to have everything kind of in place. Mm -hmm. So tell us about your licensee products like Kravit and Hickory Chair. and. Okay, so I, I have Kravit for fabrics. And at some point my... And I think it was 2002, it must have been. In 2002, at the end of the year, my husband was working at Merrill Lynch as a telecom investment banker, and he lost his job. And he and I were sitting around one day at my, at my office, and we were talking about his future and mine, and it kind of seemed like the moment to really go for it. So he and I, you know, he went beside me, went to the Kravitz and had a meeting, and I said, I really am interested in, in expanding. And they let me use their hotel room at High Point as a base. You know, they'd left and I went and went and looked at the various furniture companies. And that's how it, that started. And then after Hickory Chair, when I was pregnant with the, with the boys, I sent Andy Singer of Visual Comfort a letter introducing myself and I said I've got a whole bunch of designs that I'd like to show you and so he said yes and I FedExed them and then I started the lighting and the lighting has been very successful for me and then oh Stark Carpet's there too somewhere it's before visual comfort I'm laughing because you mentioned you said Andy Singer you know and I'm from Houston so I grew up with Andy yeah and, you know, I mean, we were really good friends. I mean, really, really good friends. And so when you said Andy Singer, oh, that's funny. She's talking about Andy. But, you know, I wasn't putting it together that Andy's this big mogul now with yeah. the lighting. Yeah. And you have probably the most popular fixture, I would think, there, the ceiling fixture, the one that's... Um, yeah, the cover. 
Now, I was sitting in my bathtub, pregnant with boys, with my with my belly, you know, emerging from the water like a great white whale. And I was looking at the ceiling and wondering, why can't I find a good ceiling mount? So I called up by a friend of my office named Sarah, and I was talking to her, and I was like, wow, you know, I think I've come up with five really good flush mounts. And I, I, I remember the story because her response cracked me up. She said, I don't believe you. And I was like, what are you talking about? You don't believe me. She's like, I just can't imagine that there are five good shapes for flush mounts. I'm like, no, I've, I've, I promise you, I've come up with some really good flush mounts. So it all came from the, the, the entire line started because I was so annoyed with my flush mount options. And I know what I want from a flush mount. I want it to look good, but not to be such a huge feature that you're looking up at the ceiling. Uh-huh. And yeah, I think it's one of their best sellers. I love the dreaming of, I've got a few things that are happening right now that I wish I could tell you about, but I can't until they're totally signed and sealed. But it is fun to dream up new ways to, you know, I, I think of it as I'd like to design things that I come across every day. Mm-hmm. So, it's, so it's very much um, necessity being the mother of invention kind of thing. Well, I think that that's how a lot of, particularly in the interiors, it seems, uh, when people have products, you know, we all as designers think, you know, we're working on a project and we think, oh, I really want a fabric that looks like this, or you have an idea and then you can't find it. And then that's how a lot of things get born is out of the necessity of you couldn't find it, so you built it. Yeah. I think that's fun. And I like sitting around thinking, like, how can, how can my business grow and do better? What should I be trying out? Even if it doesn't work, what frog should I be kissing professionally to do better? And how big is your company these days with all of these? We're only like a dozen. I do most of my, uh, or 11 of us. Uh, most of my licensing is, you know, me with a piece of paper. And then my draftswoman, who's incredibly talented, helping make it look even better. Does your husband work with you? No, my husband is a banker. He works at Morgan Stanley. When when that whole thing happened in 2002, five months later, he was hired back by by Merrill Lynch to join a different group, and he has since switched over to Morgan Stanley. But he and I have a lot of fun talking business together because our careers are so different. He, I think, is wistful about the fact that I get to actually make something, you know, like a concrete something. And I am... Uh, wistful about his ability to, you know, men in business, I think, you know, I'm, I'm not lamenting my position at all. I feel very fortunate, but I think there's something about men and their business. Like, you know, when you go to a dinner party, you all have experienced this and, and your dinner partner says, what do you do? And you say, I'm a decorator and their eyes sort of roll. And that's the last you hear of that. You know, they think we're shopping all day. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to managing X dollars and right. Now, do you think I was? I thought you were actually going to say about men in business is that they can turn it off at the end of the day. And I was had already formulated my follow up opinion, which was: Do you think your father, as a man in the design business, could segregate things like sort of the way we think of a lot of times men can do, where they, you know, at the end of the day they leave and you know they're on to no, their next thing. His career was so much his passion mm-hmm. that he could never turn it off. I mean, he would. Uh, way before I'd wake up in the morning, he was on the phone with um, the upholsters or the curtain people. And he, you know, such a different era, you know, social, their social life 
was incredibly robust. I mean, I, I really don't like going out at night. I like sitting home. Um, but I think there was an aspect of his social life that fed his professional life. And in his free time, he was visiting houses or going to museums or his whole, his all of his interests lay in it. There, there was no, and I think he was always bemused when he would have an employee who wasn't interested, you know, who, who didn't run out to go see the great exhibit or who didn't travel and go see a beautiful house. He kind of wondered, like, well, what are they doing this for? Mm-hmm. Tell us about design work, decorating work you're doing now. Do you still do private clients or? My day job is obviously decorating for clients. And at, at various times in, in my life, and I'm sure this is your experience too, you know, like you can't control where your work is. So sometimes I've been very, very local, like tri-state. But right now I've got um, uh, jobs in Kansas, Pittsburgh, New Orleans, Miami, China, Boston. It's just this very bizarre moment where oh. so many of my jobs are out of town. You didn't mention New York. I mean, of course, New York, and of course, the Hamptons. But right now, the majority of my work is outside of there. How many jobs are you able to take on at the same time? I wish I could answer that question. I wish it were easy math, but sometimes you sign on it. Well, I've got a job I'm working on right now in um, Lake Forest, and I've been working on it for four years. So when I signed on, I quote-unquote signed on, but it didn't go live for a long time. Uh-huh. So I have all these jobs at once, but they're all at different stages. So it's not as though I'm in full install mode with all of them. Right. Which is good. I could never handle that. But there are also some of the jobs are very big and some of the jobs are very small because I, some of them include construction and some of them are simple decorating jobs. And I find that that, that span helps my payroll and, you know, the business aspect. Mm-hmm. Well, so you have to be in different billing cycles and you, you can't be doing only big jobs. And, right. You know, it lets be ADD in a systematic way. <laughs> um, can we talk maybe a little bit about, uh, we've talked about this with other, other designers and a lot of our listenership, if not probably most, are actually working designers. And so we're always all fascinated how other people do what they do. Can you talk to us about your sure. process um, when, you, when you sign on a new client, you know, how, how they come to you and how you, you know, move through that sort of discovery process to the... Sure, sure. I, I never know how people come to me. I mean, unless they tell me explicitly and I sometimes feel awkward asking, um, which is silly. But uh, I have found over the years that it has been a mix. You know, obviously it began with people calling Mark Hampton. Mm-hmm. And then more and more knowing my name. But I've also, I have found that show houses have, have helped me a lot. My, my biggest group of clients came to me from a show house, oh. which is funny. Because I thought they always thought they were a waste. Yeah. And I have never done a show house without some wonderful be- result. You know, it might not be a big result, but it's been a result of some benefit. Um, the book has been enormously helpful. That was an eye-opener. I kind of thought it was, I mean, I, I certainly was, am totally invested in it, but I didn't realize that it was going to have such immediate effect on my business. So that's been great. And then, you know, word of mouth. So they call me 
I bring my portfolio and my book. I talk to them about the fact that I, you know, I don't have a signature style. I like to work in many different styles and I perceive my job as doing the best possible in interior for the person for whom I am working as opposed to imposing my taste on them. And then I talk to them about, you know, fees and billing structure and, and all of which, you know, my, my markups are all pretty consistent, but my fee is always tied into the scope of the project. Mm -hmm. So if the scope is, is smaller, the fee is generally smaller, but there's a point at which if, if the job is too small, then it triggers a bigger fee, if that makes any sense. Yeah. You know, that you have to have, you have to have the ability to make a profit. And then, of course, there's always the conversation about what is a fee for and what is the markup for. And I think, you know, the fee, if you want to, if you want to identify it, the fee could be construed as your time and the markup is for profit and your costs. Mm-hmm. But, you know, essentially it's all the same thing. But uh, I find that sometimes people are like, well, we don't understand if you're doing this, why you're doing that. But we're all trying to succeed. Right. There's a profit to me, so we have to make a profit. You have to pay your staff. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting how you broke that up and explained it. Now, do you charge by hour or just a fee? I do just a fee based upon what I anticipate the scope you know, like if you're if you're doing a huge job and you're specking all of the tile and the marble and all of those things for which we don't mark up because it's going through the contractor, uh -huh. the fee covers all of that. Okay. That, at least philosophically, that's how I think about it. And then obviously the markup is on stuff that is billed through my office. See, I have an issue. I mean, I don't have a business on this couple of years by any means. But I always have an issue of the charging by hour because, I don't know, I just think it makes people feel rushed and they're yeah, always... I, I can't stand doing hourly. It, it's, I also can't stand it just selfishly. I hate the paperwork. And I don't, wanna, I don't want to cop to having spent that many hours looking for a trash can. It's embarrassing. Right. Right. You end up working for free because, yeah. you know, and so, so I do the same thing, kind of not the same thing, but... You know, I just charge a percentage of the entire job when it's over. Like, if they spend $10,000, yeah. I'll make this fee, and that's it. Um, but, but, but do you have a hard time collecting? No, because they know always what's, how much you're spending, you know? Yeah, yeah. But I'm not on the your level, I mean, at all. Ridiculous. This is all the same thing. You most certainly are on my level. Like, this is what we do. No, 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 I know, but I don't, I, I don't do big, small, big, small or big. I think, I think, um, it, you know, the one thing that upsets me about designers, like they don't, I was talking to somebody at Blogfest recently and she was splitting her, um, you know, decorator discount with the client. And, and I said, um, you know, how long have you been in the business? And it had been a short amount of time. And I was like, okay. I get it. That's your, how you're pulling them in. And I'm like, but you're going to have to stop that soon because you're going to start losing clients for that reason. There's a point at which if you're too cheap, people somehow in their head believe that they get what they're paying for and they start to think less of you. And I also felt that she was working hard and she needed to be earning. You know, you, you don't need to be a big firm. You can be a tiny firm, but you need to be, you need to be charging. But see, I haven't run across 
that problem where people think I'm too cheap, so there's something wrong. They they're thrilled. I I want to <laughs> Nobody wants to pay what you're worth. You know, they just don't. But I, I do feel like there were clients I had in my early years who I gave very steep discounts to, that when they made more money and wanted to do a fancier project, decided to graduate to the next level. Yeah. And and it was a an interesting lesson. Hmm. Yeah, well, I can see when you're starting out, but I can't imagine that you that there's someone above you at this point. Well, well bless your sweet soul, Jenny Webb. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not saying, you know, I'm just saying that I really consider Alexa Hampton at the top of the field. Don't you, Linda? Yes. I, I think that, I, I think it's interesting. I was saying, Tony, that I find you terribly attractive. <laughs> She's devastatingly attractive with a wonderful wit. <laughs> and, and tremendously smart. That's right. Yes, very, very. So when my father, you know, when I was working for him, he would always do the schemes and everything, and then they would sign the contract. And obviously, you know, that's just crazy. That was, that's a bygone era. That's a so bygone era. So I don't do any of that work without a signed contract first. Now, one thing you said that I thought was really interesting was that, you know, a lot of people, certainly when they they reach a certain level, they don't take a small, you know, there's only a certain smallness of project they're going to take. Whereas what you said was you'll take a smaller project, but you're going to charge them a higher fee. If I have a decorating project, but it's, you know, I'm doing the whole house and it's whatever, I'll just do a smaller fee and my typical markup. But if it gets to the point that it's very small and the person says, no, I really want you to work on this job, I know it's small, then I have to account for the fact that taking that small job is going to keep me from taking some other job. Right. And that then will trigger a bigger fee. And it, it's a hard, it's not easy to figure out. Like, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to be intuitive when I'm, when I'm looking at it. Who does do that? Do you have an accountant that figures that out? Or? I, I work with, a, with an accountant, yeah, to figure yeah. out. So as you're doing projects and, you know, as experience, you know, has built over the years, you can sort of estimate this is, this is, uh, this yeah, is, I try. Yeah. I I mean, a, a time limit is essential. What do you mean by time Wait. limit? I learned the hard way, but I'm an excellent, wonderful, fun job, but it went on for 10 years. <laughs> and my, my fee, I mean, you divide it by 10 years, then suddenly was tiny. If it had been one year, it would have been or two, it would have been appropriate. And at the end of the job, the client said, "You know, I know that you've been on this job forever. Should we revisit your fee?" And I was like, "No, you know, I'm a good girl. I, I negotiated this deal, and I've I've learned to be credible." But I bet it killed you when you said no. Uh, it killed me, but I felt virtuous. Yeah. Well, that was yeah. nice of the client to to understand. It very nice. Yeah. It was very nice, and it made it all the more important for me to decline because he was being such a sweetheart. I, you know, that's actually something that I've thought of recently is about the time limit on projects and to build in. You know, we you we agree that this project will take this long because the client. I don't know if you experience it at, at your level. You know, are the clients just taking longer? Are the projects taking longer, or is that? I oh, I'm finding that they're going faster. Huh. Well, or perhaps the the they want everything faster. They want it faster, yeah. but it feels... I feel it, that way, too. I feel, that I feel like, 
like it's all speeding up and I'm on, I'm like on a, on a <laughs> but that, but it sometimes has also felt that certainly in my area that the, the clients are just taking a very long time to make decisions. So oh, once they've made, yeah. once they've made the decision, they want it, you know, they want their options fast and they want, once the decision's made, they want the results fast, but they themselves can be taking much longer in deciding to commit to certain parts of the project. I, I think that's just different people's personalities. I think you're just having a run of slow people. Uh, could be. Alexa, what is your process when a client, you have your first meeting and then what? Okay. I have my first meeting and I try to get their feedback regarding what they like. And if they can't do that using my book or my portfolio, then I want some information about what they've seen that they like. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's showing me images or showing me their house that as it currently exists. So that first meeting is like a shrink appointment. It's mm-hmm. trying to figure it out um, in vocabulary or with images, what it is they want, what's the problem, and what's the solution. Then I start the design process for myself with the floor plans. Everything comes off of the floor plans. And I must say I love... I love um, the architectural aspect of our job, and I love working with really talented architects. I'm, uh, you know, I I enjoy the convergence of practical and impractical that goes into architecture. Like that, I like having doors and casings. I like uh, because they can cut off a room, you know, close off a room, which I find practical. But then I also love, obviously, discussions of scale and detail. Uh So I do the furniture plan, and obviously the carpet goes on there. The furniture, the, you know, the sizes, the flow, all of those things that inform the furniture plan for the house. Then I present that to the client. When we're happy with our actual plan, then I show them the fabric schemes I go from there because I need to um, sometimes I, I show them maybe five schemes for each space but they're not they're not um, presented from nowhere I've, I've asked questions like what colors do you like do you dislike so I show them the various fabric schemes when we find when they choose one that they like then we start assigning the fabrics on the pieces of furniture and you know I'm usually working on the floor which is terribly inelegant, but when I am doing the fir- the fabric assignments, I like to put them around on the floor in the in the space where they'd be in the room, obviously close together though, so I can see the rhythm of the fabrics as they go through the room. So you don't want all of your blue fabrics over on one side and you don't want, you know, you want it to be an interesting composition over, over the room. Then, um, once we have the assigned fabrics, I take pictures of the windows if they exist, and if not, I do it on the construction plans. I, I do the curtain drawings. And then um, I love, I've got this great app called Penultimate. Do you guys have that? Yes. No. Oh, it's so amazing. What's it called? Penultimate. For the iPad. Okay. Immediately. So I can walk into a job and take a picture with my iPad and then paste it into a notebook, draw my curtains on the photograph, and that obviously helps me design them because I can see things like soffits and things that you can't see on a plan view. You know, I can see that there's an air conditioning register that I can't cover. 
or I can see that a column is protruding seven inches over here, so I'm going to have to do the curtains all on one side kind of thing. It, it gives me all this information. So I draw the curtains, and then I can email that drawing. That's um, a great just, idea, because I have that penultimate, and I had not even thought of doing that. Another thing that's great to do on penultimate is if you find yourself on a in a meeting and you don't have a set of plans, but somebody has a set of plans, but you want to mark them up. I recently just took a picture of the plans, put them on penultimate, and then drew in the red penultimate ink on top of them how I wanted to move walls and stuff. Wow. So huh. useful. And that what really did we do is. with all of this stuff before? I know. You know, I find what you're saying so interesting. You actually spend a, a meeting or two or three just on furniture. Yeah. Placement. Furniture and then the assignment of the fabrics onto which pieces. And then. That comes, you said second. That comes after they've approved the furniture layout. Yeah, the furniture, the furniture layout is the first step for me because it's the, for me, it's the roadmap to the entire job. It's like, it is like a map. Right. And you know, things like if you're going to have uh, five sofas in the house, it also starts like, you know, I hate having, you know, I'm not going to get five identical sofas. I want them to be different. Okay. So you, the second or third meeting or whatever, you present five color schemes in essence. Yeah, and maybe maybe I've got the schemes with the furniture plans. It depends on how long that first meeting is. Now, what if the clients, because we've had other designers, and they've told us interesting things. What if the client says, you know what, I hate that fabric. I, I don't like these fabrics. What do you do for them? Keep, keep going. Okay. Got it. So, and to try and make them feel comfortable with the fact that we might not get it on the first on the first Is there act. a charge that goes with that? With scheming? No, by this point they've signed on and okay. there's deposit and we work for them. One designer said she presents two schemes to her client and then if they don't like them, then she charges them to go start over, you know? No, 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 no. Now, see, that philosophically, the way I see my fee working, and like once they've hired me and they've paid a deposit on my fee, philosophically, I consider myself a member of their team. Mm -hmm. right. So there's no more stopping and starting. Like, that's it. I'm a teammate. I am part of team, whatever their name is. And I tell them that this is a process. But hopefully I've discussed enough with them, and I'm showing them enough choices that it's not a total disaster. I mean, I don't, I don't know the last time I showed people schemes and came up with nothing. But having said that, of course, I have a meeting today. I'm obviously going to strike out because I'm jinxing myself. <laughs> You're going to be like, I shouldn't have said yeah, it out people, loud. I have found that people are so, the fabric sometimes is really a, almost a, not a deal breaker, but some people are very particular about, you know, the fabric. But if they're very particular, if they're that particular, they should be able to articulate some of that information prior to your scheme. You know, if they hate stripes, they'll have mentioned it. Right. One hopes. One hopes. Right. Or at least you've tried to give them the opportunity to say, please tell me what you dislike. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, have you ever gone in and said, I know you said you don't like it, but I feel strongly that this stripe works with this other pattern? Not really, because I feel like there's enough out there that why I don't need to force them into something they don't like. Yeah. I hate forcing. I mean, I have a very strong personality, and I will joke with my clients and be like, that's crazy, you're wrong. But I really don't 
enjoy. I, there's something to this job that I think it attracts people to to um, pursue it. it. It attracts people who really want to please other people. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, I want my clients to be happy. I desperately want them to be happy with what I'm doing for them. It's sort of pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> Well, when I uh, I know what you're saying. When you had that final reveal and you fixed it all up, you want your client to almost cry. Yeah, you just want them to be happy. You want them to have happy lives there. You want them to feel good about the money they're spending. You just, you know, there's enough that's stressful about everything inherent to in this business that you just want to make it all good. Yeah. And I, I was shocked when I when I was um, first started in business, and I would have a meeting with someone. How many times people walk me around their house and say, "Oh, I never liked those window treatments. I had another designer do this," and and it was always like, "Well, you know, I couldn't believe how many people were looking at things that they'd spent clearly very good money on, and then yeah. would say, "I never liked that." And it was like, yeah. whose whose fault was that? Was it these that person for not expressing their I don't like stripes, <laughs> or was it the designers who sort of, you know, barreled through them and said, no, no, just trust me, you'll love it's it. It's a very it's a very different era now too. Yeah. I think there was much more of that twenty years ago. You know that people were less, and and I'm making a generalization. Of course, this, there are many instances where this is not the case, but I think people saw their designers. There were fewer designers. And and they they felt less comfortable talking about it, about what they wanted. But now I feel like everybody really knows so much about the field that they happily feel empowered so that they can voice these things. And um, do you see that as a positive, generally, overall aspect? Or do you think that in some ways, how do you feel that it, it you know, does it diminish the designer's role at some point that, that we you know, it threatens us to become more facilitators versus leaders of the problem uh, of design. Vision. Well, that is the most leading question I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think there are pros and cons to absolutely everything in life. Yeah. So I totally see your point, but I try to be an optimistic person because it just makes me happy to be optimistic. So I'd rather, I'd rather emphasize in my head that this is a good thing and it helps. But, you know, you could... I mean, like, that's like, well, people being able to go into the internet and look up diseases, does that disempower doctors? Like, yeah, the doctors are some doctors. Um, yeah. There, there are pros and cons. I like that I have a language now that I can speak to clients that adheres me being positive. I hate it wasting time, you know, weeks of time generating stuff for a client and then not get it right. Yeah. And, which could happen years ago. And now I feel like, we there's more of a language with which to speak it. I think instead of uh, disabling the leadership potential, I think perhaps it makes it more of a profession and less of an art, which I think has some sad aspects to it. Mm -hmm. But I think historically the problem with decorating has been that it hasn't been considered a profession. So now it is, it, and it just needs to be, you know, some of the romance might be lost, but one can approach it systematically and professionally. Yeah. Yeah. I'm such a Pollyanna. I really want to have happy thoughts about Well, that's, that's good. I mean, you know, I, I think it's, it's an interesting conversation because it's a conversation that people are having all the time of, you know, it's kind of like the, the client who says, I saw this sofa at, you know, 
a lot of times to stretch the budgets we're go shopping retail and mixing in yeah. trade only and there's the contingency who thinks that's a terrible thing and there's the contingency which i'm part of which says as long as the end result is to the client's satisfaction looks beautiful and was within their budget what's wrong with it yeah and also what, what's to be gained about sitting around being angry about it right like, it is what it is it's not it's not gonna go away the, the genie's out of the bottle yeah yeah and it i think it's forced designers back into being you know we're not we aren't just sell, selling expensive things we're creating a space we're creating homes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. what's exciting coming up do you have any any books in the process or new product lines i'm working on my second book and i have a, a furniture line by hickory chair that is for Kravit that is distinct from a hickory chair line so that's coming out this year and i'm very excited that's very exciting and how was your book? How was it what you expected? Better or it was great. I I was excited to write it, but I was a little nervous because even as my publisher said, they're like, you know, in, in the your in your life of design, you're in your infancy, which I was like, what? Because you know, I've been doing this forever, but it's been one of those comments that sticks around in your head, and it's. It's made me feel kind of excited, like, wow, you know, maybe I am in my infancy in terms of what my beliefs are, you know, 20 years from now, maybe they'll be totally different, how cool and fun, and I look forward to it. But um, I was nervous about writing a book because when I grew up, it was something you did as a career capper, not ah. in the middle of it. So I was worried that it was goofy but then I was very very happy I did it. it the the process of articulation has tightened my understanding of my beliefs and from a practical standpoint it has been very very rewarding I've got lots of work from it I think there are 20,000 in print right now so I'm psyched you know I yeah. think it's great you know that that you said the two things you said your book and show houses have been um, you know, rewarding because so often you it's everything, and I've even gotten great jobs from speaking. You know, it's it's important for all of us to try different things. No, yeah. you know, I have a column with the Wall Street Journal, and that too has been incredibly rewarding. What I like is now you have this gorgeous portfolio that you can bring. Yes. bring it to the job. I mean, what better way to present you know your work than your book. Yeah. It's interesting. People do seem to give you extra credit if you have a book. It's it's fascinating because I am not in any way different than I was before the book. But when somebody sees your name on a book jacket, I don't know, it's like you're given a um like an extra little serious boost. Well, it makes sense, is, as you said, historically, the book was the capper of a career, so that the vestiges of that, meaning you certainly have to have risen, you know, at your age, this is not the capping of your career, um, but you certainly have to have risen to a certain level to have a publisher want to put put that into a book. Yeah. So, well, that's great. I, I definitely, given the fact that my father was who my father was, I had an opportunity um, and I ran with it, you know? Yeah. Well, like, I, I know that it's a unique set of circumstances, and you either run with it or you don't. 
And and you've expanded and, it clearly. But if I, you know, to me, my father is just the best, the ultimate. I and I don't have any sort of anxiety about trying to conquer his memory or anything. Do you ever look at his portfolio and? Oh my God! I I that is in my head at all times. Uh huh. I mean, I can't. I couldn't take his work out of my. Yeah. I mean, he's my mentor. It's so wonderful. Yeah. I mean, everybody, like as a parent, as a designer, you know, he's my daddy. He was really incredible. I mean, from teaching himself how to read music and play the piano beautifully, to being a wonderful dancer, to a wonderful painter, to having a, a memory that would freak you out. Like I would, uh, you know, you could, he just was bizarre. And yeah, he just was a, a very special talent. I'm sure that the shoes are hard to fill or... I'm very grateful I'm a daughter and not a son. Hmm. But you speak, you sound so self-confident. Is that how it truly is? Yeah, you? I'm, I'm pretty self-confident, but I'm also like not, as I said, I'm not, I have no, no desire or anxiety about trying to top my father. I am, there's something, um, confidence imbuing about not trying. You know, I don't have to worry about that because I don't even think it's possible. So that allows me to be at peace. I see. That's great. Well, that's self-confident. Yeah, that's a very self-confident way to look at it. I mean, yes, it I, you know. I must say, I enjoy this kind of forum. I'm so inspired by other designers. You know, that's what keeps me most excited about the field. I like looking at other people's work. I like hearing about them. And there's an aspect of my father dying so early that I wish he had shared more of the business angle, you know, things like that. The nuts and bolts of the biz. Yes, I compliment you for providing. All right, well, Alexa, thank you so much. This has been really, uh, unfortunately, fraught yes. with some technical and problems, a, but a great pleasure. conversation. Thank you guys so much. This has been the Skirted Roundtable with Megan Arquette from Beach Bungalow 8, Joni Webb from Cota, Texas, and I'm Linda Merrill from Surroundings. You can visit us online at www.skirtedroundtable.blogspot.com or download our podcasts from iTunes. Search for the Skirted Roundtable. Thanks again, and we'll be back soon.